0: of course, is the first of the two Tokhaz in the Torah, the two in the Torah, one Pashis one in Kisavo. It's very um, fascinating to really learn the Ramban on it. The Ramban actually shows you and demonstrates how the one in Parsh's correlates and corresponds to the um, destruction of the first base of Mikdash and this, and the subsequent exile. And the one in Paschus Kisavah, which is the much longer Tokha and the seemingly endless one, because the one in kosai comes to a to a very clear conclusion. The one in Paschus Kisavah doesn't seem to have its its conclusion over there. But the one in, Bukhosa, in Kisavah Kisava refers to our goals nowadays. And Rabban actually traces it and shows you how each one has has certain differences and nuances that are different that are clearly either um appropriate only for the first or for the second base of migdash or the type of colors that we're in so those are the destructions of the two Bote Migdash with, and its exiles are the two Tokhas in the Torah. just as a side that you always have i have a york site the person only has two parents you have two Bote migdash you only have two parents and uh, i have a york site for one and always comes out of the talk of kosai and for the second one comes out of the I always used to have a kind of uh, I don't know premonition of sorts every time we came to to this part of the Parsha so this time of the year so I always used to when my mother was sick always think like it's a hurdle we have to get over and every time we got over the hurdle of my father's site I always felt you know like a clear shot to next year and then of course I didn't realize that Parsha Kisete and Kisovah have the same problem come up And anyhow, so those are Two tall chazim. What's what's different about this one in harsh the is that it ends off on page three twenty one that the of on pasuk membez the zocharti as brisi yakov vafas brisi yitzchok vafas brisi avrom eskor vohar eskor I will remember the covenant with Yaakov also the covenant with Yitzhak. Also the covenant with Avram, I will remember and the land shall remember. That's what the Possek says. There's of course a few you know, interesting ideas that seem to be already expressed in the Possek. The fact that it walks in backwards from Yaakov to Yitzhak to Avram. The fact that it's mentioned each one so individually, so separately. But I'm going to skip all of that and just point out the spelling of the name Yaakov. Notice how the spelling of the name Yaakov here is very unusual in the Torah, right? Yaakov is usually spelled without the vav. Here Yaakov has an extra vav in it. In other words, it makes it mole, what we call mole. Mole is that whenever you, you write out the vowels that can be written out, such as the vav for the O sound, as opposed to Yaakov without the vav sound. Without the vav, you still make the same sound. Throughout the Torah, it's pronounced Yaakov the same, but it's not written Yaakov, Mole. It's always written Yaakov Choser. <coughs> here it's written Yaakov Mole with the extra Vav. So Rashi brings down over here, Rashi brings down the words of the Sifra, where the Sifra points out that not only are there, is this one place, but there are a total of five places in Tanakh where Yaakov is spelled Mole with the Vav. Correspondingly, interestingly enough, there are five places in the Torah where Eliyahu Novi's name is spelled Chosr. Eliyahu's name is always spelled Moleh, because to get the sound of Eliyahu, generally speaking, you're going to have the Vov over there at the end of the hey. You could theoretically get the same sound and the same pronunciation without the Vov, where you just put the three-dotted U sound under the hey, and you got it. Of course, in the Torah and in the, in the Novi, they never wrote any dots. So it comes out that if you spell Eliyahu's name Choser. It tends to sound as Elyah, which of course is where people always refer to uh, my brother's name, my grandfather's name. Everybody calls him Moshe Elia, as opposed to Moshe Yahoo. And the same thing with Yishaya or Yeshayahu. There's a number of names that work like that. That You can have it Choser or you can have it Mole. You could always pronounce it the same way, even if it's written Choser, but it's noticeable when it's written Choser. Yeshaya or Yeshayahu is, you know, differently because sometimes be pronounce differently so there are five places in the Torah that Eliyahu's name is written Choser corresponding to the five times that Yaakov's name is written Mole says Rashi let's take a look at Rashi on this five places uh, Ra- Yaakov's name is written Mole and Eliyahu is Choser the bottom of the of the column so we have that Eliyahu's name is Choser Bechamisha Mekaymus. Says the Taurus Kayanim this. Yaakov notal Eis Mishmaishel Eliyahu, a Ravai. Yaakov borrowed or took a letter from Eliyahu's name, inserted in his name in his own name as a guarantee, as an insurance policy, sheyovav <laughs> that Eliyahu will come, and and bimavaser, and announce the guula of the children of Yaakov. So, why should it be Yaakov out of all of them? Or does it help taking the Vav from Elio? Exactly what that means. But what is this all about that he's taking an insurance from Elio that he should come and be vasser the Gula? Just the actual concept itself is what we're going to deal with. Besides the fact why was Yaakov and the Vav and, and Elio, why these particular individuals were the ones involved. But. I mean, what is this? This is what's going to guarantee Mashiach? Find some other way of guaranteeing Mashiach, of guaranteeing the Gula. It's almost as if Yaakov wants something special. He doesn't merely want the Gula, which is guaranteed in the Torah. The Torah already says that it's going to be. The Avgam Hashem is going to redeem us. It's almost like there's a personal thing here that Yaakov wants something special out of Eliyahu. Elio, by the way, is not the redeemer. Elio is not coming as the redeemer. Elio is coming only as the announcer of the gulam. It's the always... Has an that, like that. That, that the purpose of Eliyahu is not to bring the redemption. Yaakov seems to have been asking for something different than mere guarantees of redemption. He's asking for Eliyahu in particular to come and make sure to announce the redemption. The, the truth is I'll tell you, I never realized this really when I saw this Rashi. That it, it, it wasn't so much that Yaakov is asking and needs some guarantee for redemption. <clears throat> a number of places in the Torah that it says it. It seems that Yaakov in particular wants Elyaranovi to come for the purposes of announcing the redemption. So what's that all about? That's we'll take a look at now, that'll be the first piece. Okay. <clears throat> if you look on the second page of your Bahar sheet, <coughs> right this really gets to the to the issue of what then is the purpose really of Eliyahu Navi? you know what, before we do this maybe I'll read to you a little bit from the Rambam about Eliyahu Navi and the um, part before Mashiach first of all says the Rambam in the end of Hilchus Shoftim, Hilchus Molochim, al yala Halev Mashiach we don't have to have a new kind of life in terms of, um, in terms of unnatural living. And he says that that it says in Yeshaya, doesn't say Yeshaya but, that the lamb shall lie with the lion and all of these things refers more to a parable rather than a literal change of nature. It just means that the Jewish people will live in peace with all the wolves around us and therefore as a result it will ultimately lead to a general recognition of the true religion of the true faith and that's really what, what the Pasuk alludes to there will no longer be violence in the world and theft and everyone is going to, to um, consume that which is appropriate for them and they'll all live in peace with Pali All, therefore says the Ramam all of those things regarding Mashiach are by way of parable then he says we will finally know the true meaning of these psukim only after Mashiach finally comes we can't know it in advance because these are all allegorical and they're unclear also he paskins like those that hold that there is no difference between this world and the worlds of Mashiach which of course is Machlechus in the Gemara and that's the way the Ramah paskins he then says that it would seem that the way is going to unfold is the following that in the days of Mashiach or in the beginning of the days of Mashiach there's going to be this tremendous war Gog and and then he says before Gog and is going to come some prophet is going to arise to clear the way so to speak and to prepare the Jews in their hearts for what's going to happen Shenemar, as it says, sholeach es Which can have various interpretations. In fact, this is one of the last prophecies that we have in Tanakh. The last of the prophets. Chagai, Ezechari, Malachi, they were the last of the prophets. Malachi himself of course being the last of the prophets according to some Malachi was Ezra Ezra Sofer but that doesn't really matter. Malachi was the last of the prophets. And the last of the prophecies that were given by Malachi, which really sort of like conclude all of the Novi portion of Tanakh, was a prophecy that, implicitly that prophecy is coming to a close, and Zikhu Torah's Moshe Avdi studied the Torah. It was really a a mandate for the Jews to go study the Torah. It was in the year of the Anshei Knesset, all the beginning of the flourishing of Torah Shabal path. and then it concludes by saying I'm going to send before you Eliyahu Hanavi before that great and awesome day the great and awesome day is unclear generally it's understood before the arrival of Mashiach it could also not necessarily be before the arrival of Mashiach himself but conceivably before the Milchom of maybe before Tchis HaMason or the renewal of the world or something like that it's unclear as to what Lifnei uh, Yom HaGodl V'Anora is. What is that Yom HaGodl V'Anora? Interestingly enough, I should just point out that this is the Haftarah that's read before Pesach by Shabbos HaGodl. One of the reasons why Shabbos HaGodl is called Shabbos Hagodul, amongst all the other reasons is because this is a Haftarah that talks about the Yom HaGodl V'Anora. This is the last of the prophecies that, that's uh, that's written and read. It's read on Shabbos HaGodl. So what is this Yom HaGodl V'Anora? Is not really clarified by the um, by the Novi himself the Rambam therefore is saying almost as conjecture where he's saying that that you, what you're going to have is a prophet coming before the wars of Gogomago and the purpose of it is to prepare the Jews why? because if you look at the Pasach, the Pasach further on continues and says that why is Eliyahu Novi coming? what is the purpose of Elyon Novi? It says He's not coming to revolutionize halacha He's not coming to do any innovations He's not coming to bring chumras He's not coming to bring kulas Whatever your agenda is He's not coming for any of that He's not coming to give us more chumras or less That's not his purpose He's not coming to take people and say This guy's a mamzer or whatever it is And he's not coming to try to Cleanse the Jews and make them you know, uh, Kosher He's coming for one purpose. He says to bring peace to the world. What does that mean? Shneamar, as it says, his purpose is to bring a kind of a tshuva, to prepare the Jews for what's coming, to bring peace, to bring harmony in the family. Then the Rambam says that it is that it's some of the chachamim suggest elyo. <speaking in Hebrew> that before Mashiach comes, Eliyahu, nobody's going to come. He says, most of these things, says the Rambam, nobody really knows for certain until it occurs. Because these things were really closed off, even by the greatest of the prophets. And the sages didn't have a real tradition that they have on this, unlike other areas of the Torah where there was a clear tradition. The sages did not have a tradition in matters of Mashiach. All they were able to do was apply what they knew and what they understood about these matters to the psukim as the psukim are listed there's this psukim and you take the uh, psukim and you try to understand it and the sages made their comments based on their understanding of the various psukim in Tanakh so he says but but nobody has a real solid tradition on it nor did the Naveen themselves have a full comprehension of their own prophecies therefore you'll find arguments and therefore you'll find it unclear and debates on these things. But he says the actual unfolding of the events and all of its details and particulars doesn't really matter. It's not one of the things that we have to believe in. We have to believe in the overall redemption and overall Mashiach, but the Dikdukim, the particulars and the specifics, is not really part of our tenets of faith. So although in the Yud Gimel Ikrim you have the 12th Ikkar being Mashiach, 12th ikr is belief in the redemption belief in Mashiach but as to the unfurling of Mashiach the particulars that's not one of the Gimel Elikrim it's not something that's really of primary importance therefore a person shouldn't spend too much time trying to figure all of these things out because it's not that important as well as the fact that you shouldn't make this the main thing your main focus of Judaism it shouldn't center around Mashiach and redemption in fact there was one faction that actually made Mashiach into their major focus of, uh, of Judaism, and they became Christian. In fact, the name Christian actually means that, because that's Christian is just Greek for Mashiachist, for Messianist. That's that's Greek. Is, is uh, when they call him Christ, it means Mashiach. So what they actually did was they took the whole concept of Mashiach and made it the main focus of, uh, oh, sorry, Fumancho there needs, uh, so um, they made it the main focus of what Judaism was, ultimately to be slowly but surely squeezed out of Yiddishkeit. So the Rambam says that you shouldn't make this the focus of your Yiddishkeit, we assume Iker, because it doesn't bring to anything that's valuable in terms of Yiddishkeit, Avon, Yira. Also, to worry about the end, the times, and he quotes what Chazal say. Rucham shem In any case, so the Rambam though that's not that I just was giving you just an overall picture. So the Rambam says that the details of Mashiach are really unknown, the unfolding of the events, but it's not important. There's no real tradition on it. There's no real misorah. but we know, of course, that it's going to come. That's the and the Rambam actually incorporates it into his 12th Iker. 12th Iker being Mashiach. However, says the Rambam, the details is not the Iker. That's not the fundamental. Only the actual fact that Mashiach is coming. So what then is the way the Rambam assumes that it's going to un- unfold? What's interesting is the Rambam seems to say there's going to be two kinds of prophets coming. One, which he's convinced of, is the Posh chat of the Pasik in Malachi, is some prophet... Interestingly enough, he doesn't say necessarily Eliyahu for this, but some prophet that's going to come before the great and awesome day of God, which the Ramam does not seem to define as being identical with Mashiach. He seems to make it sound like it's more has to do with gogol And the purpose then is it's to bring peace and harmony in families, and in the Jewish people as a whole, in general. He says, though, that there are those that say that there's going to be Elio anovi is going to come before um, before Mashiach comes. Here he does mention the name. He says that it's Elio. Although the Pasik is based on Malachi, which is, according to the Rambam, referring to Golgumogog, and over there, the Rambam doesn't even cite Elio by name. It's a little confusing in terms of the Rambam. But... So Elio, the way we understand it, seems to have the function of coming as a, um, as not so much as an announcer, at least the Ram doesn't seem to give us this impression, perhaps he's coming as that as well, that's like the second part of the Rambam, but he's primarily coming to set us straight in order that we should start doing tshuva, in order to bring peace into the world so that we should be then ready for the awesome events that are going to unfold such as gogumogon. What then though would be the function of Eliyahu as an announcer? Because the Ramam also alludes to it and certainly that's the common understanding that the purpose of Eliyahu is to announce the coming of Mashiach, the imminent coming of Mashiach. Why would that be important? Why is it important to have somebody come and say, by the way, prepare the way Mashiach is about to come and I am Eliyahu I came back and I'm telling you that Mashiach is coming. Why should that be of any significance? So Schwab has a very interesting understanding of that idea. Let's take a look at that. I just want to give you a little bit more background because he doesn't give you this one. So that's the Rambam. If you look in the middle of the back page, the Zoharity has Brisi, Yaakov, middle column. He quotes Rashi that says, mole. Yaakov's name is Mole, and Elio is missing in five places. Yaakov took a letter from the name of Elio as a... Uh, insurance they They should come and announce the gula of his children middle middle column middle column, middle paragraph what exactly is this insurance that he wants also we have to understand the concept that Rashi is trying to convey to us which is that we need Elio to announce the gula the Rambam seems to direct our thoughts more to the idea of to bring peace and harmony and prepare the way, especially for the way for, for Gog and but Rashi is bringing the Taurus and the Rambam really alludes to it a little bit as well that there seems to be a function of Elio coming before Mashiach for the purpose of an announcement, what's the point so he brings that to our attention here, a, a very interesting Ramban a Ramban that deals with one of the most fundamental concepts that he tries to to constantly convey to us in the parish of the Ramban. In fact, the Ramban in Parshat kosai comes from another angle to tell us a very similar lesson, which is the following. The Ramban in Parshat Yigash that he's referring to here talks about the question of the lineage of Moshe and who Moshe's mother was, how old she was. And he comes to the conclusion, which of course is the is the conclusion that everybody would come to when you uh, work out the times and the generations, that Yocheved, Moshe Rabbeinu's mother, was the the direct daughter of Levi. In fact, based on the Fithid Chazal, their understanding is that she was born between the walls. Because in one place we find 69 coming down, yet it says 70 arrived in Egypt. So it seems that Levi's wife was pregnant in the journey on the way down to Egypt, and gave birth just as they got to the gates of Egypt between the walls so to speak and that's when Yocheved was born there are many places in the Torah that, that the understanding seems to be that Yocheved was the direct daughter of Levi Yocheved Bas Levi comes out that Moshe Rabbeinu was born to Yocheved she was born to Yocheved, who was the grand who was the daughter of Levi making Moshe a direct grandchild of Levi I'm not going to try to figure out the math with you. It's not important. But we know that Moshe Rabbeinu was, uh, the Jews went out of Egypt when Moshe Rabbeinu was 80 years old. That means Moshe Rabbeinu was born 80 years earlier. Based on the calculation, they were there for 210 years. Comes out that 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 she was born just as they came down to Egypt. Right? That's when Yochavah was born. Her birthday was literally when they came to Egypt. That means 210 years later is when they left Egypt. And at that time Moshe was 80. means Moshe Rabbeinu was born. How old was Yocheved? 130. So by all calculations, it comes out that Yocheved was 130 years old when, when Moshe was born. Which, says the Ebenezer, is an impossibility. Because women do not give birth at age 130. If you're gonna tell me that, if you're gonna tell me that it's a miracle, like by Sarah, then how come the Torah doesn't mention it? The Torah plays up Sarah's giving birth so highly as being such a great miracle, she was only 90. Why doesn't the Torah make mention of the greater miracle of Yochavet giving birth at 130? True, one could possibly argue that she already had children before, whereas Sarah didn't, but the idea of a woman giving birth at age 130, or perhaps not even at age 124, which would have been her earlier births, is also a miracle. So why doesn't the Torah play of that miracle at least as much as Sarah's miracle? Therefore, the Evangelist says, somehow or other, we've got to figure out something else over here that's what compels the Ebenezer to disregard this calculation although it seems to be the only one you could come to but he says can't be because otherwise the Torah would have highlighted it comes the Ramban in response to the Ebenezer saying listen the calculation of 130 is is sound that's what Chazal said Chazal said clearly that's when Yochem was born as to why the Torah doesn't play it up so the Ramban says an important concept here and that's what we're going to see Vine Haramban, the parshas by Yigash, Herach bin Yochhevet, Shemnol de Bi Ridis Yaqubul Mitzraim, Ninth Shaledas Moshe Rabu Pella Godal Yaisim Ledas Yitzhak. He talks about the birth of of Yochhevet, that if it was when they were born, if Moshe was born when they uh, rather Yoched was born when they came into Egypt, it comes out that Moshe's birth was a tremendous miracle, even more than the birth of Yitzhak, which was 130. Because of the Zealous Shina, it says the Ramban to respond to why the Torah doesn't mention it. Let me tell you something which is a clear truth in the Torah. Namely, that miracles that occur through a prophet, which is predicted by a prophet in advance, or a maloch that comes to predict a miracle by Hashem, Yaskirim akosim; those are the only ones that are mentioned in the Torah. V'hanasim mealein. But miracles that seemingly occur, so to speak, by themselves, either for the purpose of temporarily helping a tzaddik, olahachrus rush, or to destroy the wicked, lo yaskiru b'torah b'nevim. The Torah doesn't play it up as being a miracle necessarily, because he's going to explain why. The point being that the only miracles that are mentioned in the Torah aren't all the miracles that occurred. Because there could have been many miracles that for some reason didn't get mentioned into the Torah. Says the Ramban, what is the criteria to decide as to which miracles make it and which miracles don't? Not the the, um, impact of how great the miracle itself is, but rather whether it was pre-announced by a prophet or by a messenger of Hashem. So it's not exactly the immensity or the enormity of the miracle which qualifies it as making it in the Torah, but rather a miracle that was predicted in advance by Hashem through the prophet or through the angel he says therefore he continues to make mention of all the other miracles there's no point because all the Torah is full of hidden miracles that is the foundation and the basis of the Torah Ramban is trying to tell us that an important lesson in fact it's reiterated here in Pasha's Buchu Kosai which is the following Again, we will briefly diverge, but it's an important concept, also it's related to the Parsha. Famous question that everybody asks, how come Parsha that begins by saying, statements, that if you follow the Torah and the mitzvahs, you'll have the rainfall, you'll have produce, and you'll be able to eat your bread for um, health and for sustainment, and you'll live in peace in your land, there won't be any wars, you'll be able to vanquish all of your enemies, and you'll be healthy, and all of these things will happen. You'll have many children, you'll always have leftovers, you'll have a mishkan, that's the way it ends. Is this what the purpose of, of Torah and mitzvahs are all about? Just that we should have the rainfall coming in its proper time. What about, we all know that this world is only a pale, is only a pale uh, facsimile, if you will, of the true reward which is in the Olam Haba. In fact, there are many statements in the Gemara, that says that there's no real reward possible in this world anyway all true reward is for the next world reward for the next world say that real quick over and over so people are impatient that's correct but why is there no mention then made of the ultimate reward so throw a bone throw a bone for somebody by saying this but talk about the main reward the main reward is the next world no mention is made of it There are approximately seven, eight different approaches to it. The Abar brings him down. The Aklioker briefly brings him down over here. And it's discussed, uh, we'll save it for other times. The Rambam has his famous classical approach. Ramban has his. The Ramban's approach briefly is as follows. The fact that Hashem is going to reward the individual Jew or the individual soul in the next world There's nothing miraculous. It's quite natural. In other words, if a person is endowed with a soul, and you do all that you need to sustain that soul and to expand on it and to build it, and then you go into the next world to Olam Habah, that's fine. That's normal. That's natural. What the Torah deals with is the miracles. The Torah deals with things that are of a miraculous nature that wouldn't make sense commonly. There's no correlation between my mitzvah performance and the rain. Rain is a physical factor. Likewise, all of the things that happen to the Jewish people, whether supernaturally or naturally, are all miraculous in nature. The reason being that to, to, to directly correlate the reward that Hashem gives you in this world with your mitzvah performance and Torah learning is not logical. It's not a direct... It's, it's a miracle. It's a hidden miracle because it's a natural miracle because it occurs through nature. But what the, what the Torah is highlighting is the miracles that are going to be given to the Jewish people for their mitzvah performance. If you keep the Torah in the mitzvahs in the land of Israel, you're going to have produce, bumper crops, peace, health, serenity, security. It's only going to rain Wednesday night and Friday. It says in the days of Shimon Ben Shetach, which is one of the few periods in Jewish history where the Jews lived the B'chukos Te It says that they actually took the, the grains from the days of Shimon Ben Shetach to preserve it for future generations to show them what it means that for that brief period in Jewish history, the Jews lived on the level that they were supposed to. It only rained Wednesday night and Friday nights when the Jews were home, and therefore it didn't bother anybody. And it's a miracle. To have always the rain coming at that time and to have a bumper crop and all of the wonderful things is a miracle. It's a hidden miracle because it's a natural miracle. It says the Ramban. So the whole Torah is full of hidden miracles because the whole Torah keeps constantly, you know, reprising the same point. If you keep the Torah, I'll do this. If you keep the Torah, if you listen to Hashem, you won't have the sicknesses of Egypt. If you keep the Torah, the whole Torah is full of hidden miracles. So to make mention of some other hidden miracle and highlighting it, what's the point? The whole Torah is full of that. It says the Ramban in terms of why the Torah doesn't talk about the future world. That's not miraculous. What's miraculous is that life in this world should follow the patterns of the Torah. That's miraculous. But that you should go to Gan Eden. What's, that's perfectly normal. That's natural. Everybody understands that this is something that has to be reiterated not only because of what you're saying with the impatience but it's a difficult concept to comprehend that my mitzvah of performance and my Torah life and the Jewish people as a collective whole living a Torah life should affect life on this world in a hiddenly miraculous way where Hashem has to manipulate all the forces of history and nature (laughs) that's a big miracle therefore says the Ramban the same thing with the birth of Lady. it was never predicted it just happened Torah doesn't discuss those things. The Torah only discusses that the angels came, the messengers came, and they told Avram in a year's time, Sarah's going to give birth. Sarah giving birth, she's 90 years old, but it was announced in advance and told them, this is what's going to happen. Ooh, announced in advance, that's a miracle. Moshe Rabbeinu says, tomorrow there is going to be blood, tomorrow there's going to be frogs, tomorrow there's going to be lice. He predicted in advance what's going to happen and then it happened. It's sort of like you know, um, using mathematical things, you can play tricks with them. Right now, two cars go by with California plates that both begin with the letter HB. Two cars will come by within a period of five minutes from different sides of New York. Coincidentally, they come by. Figure out by mathematical statistics the chance of such a thing happening are one in a billion. They're one in a billion. It's a miracle. It's not a miracle if you didn't predict it in advance. What makes it a miracle is if I tell you right now, I predict. That there's going to be a car coming by now with California plates, beginning with an H, and I predict again in five minutes the same thing, and it happens. Wow, that's a miracle. But that a, uh, that a convergence of events should occur, that make it almost mathematically impossible if it's not predicted in advance. Some will say it just happened. I mean, everything happens is one in a billion chance. What are the chances that there should be four pens lined up over here like this, looking like this? I mean, inconceivable. Is that amazing? Isn't that amazing? But before Eddie reached out for it, I would have told Stan... I think it's five, Rabbi. Now that's the miracle. That's the miracle. miracle. Then he saw it was only four (laughs) But predicted in advance, that's what makes the miracle. So therefore, says the Ramban, the Torah's emphasis on miracles are only on predicted miracles, and those are what we refer to as openly revealed miracles the other ones fall into the category of hidden miracles. So he explains this concept. We have to understand, when we call a nase a we're about eight lines from the bottom of the middle column. First of all, let's now diverge again just to expand on the point a little bit. What does the word nase literally mean? What does the word nase mean? So, very good. You, you're not saying that from your great vast mm-hmm. knowledge of Hebrew. You probably because you heard the concept already before. Now you're saying it from your knowledge of Hebrew. V'sonayz l'kaviz kol yoselu, right? Very good. That's very very perceptive. Very perceptive. That the word nayz is used l'horim Nais, to hold up a banner. A banner is called a nace. Why is a nayz called a banner? Or to use more uh, contemporary terms, a marquee. A marquee. What is what is the purpose of that? because in effect what it's doing is a demonstration of the power and might of Hashem it's really what it is people that are going through life not fully aware that God is present you have a miracle happen it's like lifting up a banner that exposes the entire world to the majesty and to the might and power of Hashem by the same token Nisoyon also can mean something similar what is a Nisoyon? a Nisoyon is a demonstration of your powers so is Hashem's might and power. Nisayon is your dormant powers. Because the fact is that if you want to talk about a trial or a test that Hashem gives people, then the word would be a bokinah. A test. God's boching. A test. A Nisayon is more than a test. A test is to bring out the knowledge to me, the tester, of what you really have. But you yourself don't necessarily change as a result. The Nisayon, on the other hand, Brings out your own powers to yourself, which you previously didn't expect, and you previously didn't have. Therefore the more proper translation of nisayon will be challenged. But it functions the same way as a banner. It's a demonstration to yourself, a demonstration to the world. Avram gives Hashem gives Avram a nisayon, a test, a challenge. It's not only as a test, it's to show the world and to Avram himself possibly, and for all of history and for the Jewish people, why Avram is what he is. And it, it, it strengthens Avram. So Nisayon so and Nase have the same root. So when we talk about miracles, miracles don't necessarily mean supernatural events. A miracle is a demonstration of Hashem's might, which usually is going to be on something that's of a supernatural <coughs> nature. If it's supernatural, it's a an Nase. <coughs> Therefore, he says, we call a miracle a miracle a an Nase, because since it's not Alpider Chateva, whom is <laughs> and it seems to run counter to nature, therefore we call it a miracle, as I explain why. But in actuality, but one can't really say, this something that occurred is actually supernatural. Because we don't know all the things that naturally occur. When people see something, and they think it's a UFO, and all of this is marsh gas, or the northern lights, so there's a logical explanation to everything. If some statue um, cries and, and sheds tears, you just discover the natural reason for it, and then you have no longer a miracle. So, we don't know everything that occurs in nature, so for us to conclusively say that some event is a supernatural event is rather difficult to say. So, to merely define a miracle as being something supernatural, when in actuality we have to plead ignorance in terms of our knowledge of is it supernatural or not which sort of like put us in a bind in terms of what miracles are because after all we don't know all of nature certainly they didn't know all of nature 2,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago so to define miracles as being supernatural events or unnatural events would be wrong furthermore but we Jewish people believe anyway in Hashgachah Prophets. We believe in divine supervision of everything. And that's the case, Harayah called together Nis in the storm. Everything is really going to be a supernatural thing if Hashem is the one that's that's, um, demanding it to occur. In other words, if we're going to define miracles as supernatural events and we don't even know what is supernatural and what is natural, the point being that if my mitzvah creates rain, that's just as supernatural as turning a river into blood maybe turning river to blood you'll find a logical explanation but if my mitzvah causes rain in my backyard that's a miracle it doesn't look like a miracle but it is it's supernatural so the point is that the line between natural and supernatural is very much blurred was sahar's one then define a hidden miracle versus a revealed open miracle it's not in terms of what's difficult for Hashem because for Hashem all of nature really is resulting from his will that nature should continue to exist So the universe is being maintained because Hashem wants it. We dive into this every single day, right? Every single morning we say that it's that that, that the world is being maintained. Hashem renews on a daily basis the ma'aseh beresish by maintaining the world. So it comes out that the creation, which is the greatest of miracles, has to be constantly maintained. Therefore, as Jews we understand shari is koateva three lines from the bottom. That the existence of everything is because Hashem wants it to be. And Hashem causes and gives life to everything at all times. In fact, the name Hashem, which is usually understood to be has another understanding, which is even more basic. The name is also understood to mean Mahave as called Holomos. He causes the existence of everything. He keeps it existing. Hashem is the source of existence. So therefore it's not only an act of one time creation but a constantly reiterated and constantly continued maintenance of existence. Hashem is the generator of the maintenance of existence. And that's what Hashem's name actually means. So if that's the case then Yufzak al Shefalaki for that reason if the Divine sustenance and nourishment, the shefa, the the light from Hashem that is endowed and bestowed upon the world would cease, what the Yasar called is vain, then the universe would also cease. So therefore, what's a miracle really? In actuality, what makes one thing any different from anything else from God's perspective? <speaking in Hebrew> In other words, the point is that miracles are all relative. From God's perspective, creation, hidden miracles, open miracles, revealed miracles, supernatural ones, natural ones, the maintenance of the universe is all the same. So from God's perspective, one is not any more miraculous than the other. It's only from the recipient's perspective, relative to the recipient, that a miracle could be called a miracle. It's what Andy Neff referred to, I believe, as the wow factor. In other words, when you see something occurring, and you go, wow, that's a miracle. That's really the definition of a miracle. A miracle is not a supernatural event. It's that the people on the receiving end go, wow, this is a demonstration of Hashem. As I explained earlier, the word nase is a banner. So if you're able to show a banner demonstration of Hashem's might and power, which awes the people and makes them go, wow, that's a miracle, that's a miracle. That is by definition a miracle. So it's nothing to do with whether it's supernatural or natural, it has nothing to do with that, whether it's large or small, says the, the Ramban, or says the way Rev Schwab explains the Ramban. The purpose then of having the Prophet come in advance to predict the miracle is because that's what makes the miracle into a miracle. If it's not predicted in advance, then just because something supernatural happens, it's like the rest of the Torah. The rest of the Torah is also based on hidden miracles and, and, and natural miracles and, what, and whatever else. Any miracle that occurs that's not predicted, and in advance is not being anticipated falls into the regular nister that the whole Torah is suffused with. What makes the miracle special and unique is the fact that it was predicted in advance by a prophet. The prophet says this is going to happen and when it happens if I tell you about the two license plates driving by that's what makes you go wow not the fact that it actually occurs. He says like this Vizehu Sheh Elio Barak Harmel in the famous in the famous challenge between him and the prophets of the Baal when they stood at Mount Carmel and they and they each took they each took um, altars and they prayed to the prophet the prophets of the Baal prayed to the Baal that fire should miraculously do it. And Novi also prayed to Hashem, but I Novi first takes buckets of water and soaks and drenches the entire altar and then he asks Hashem, Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And then immediately a fire comes down and blows the whole thing up. The altar, the fire, the wood, the water, the moat, everything all becomes consumed and the people are very, are very impressed. In fact, they, that's when they say, Hashem hu Hashem So the Gemara in Baruch says, What was it? Why did Eliyanovi say, Why did double repetition, Hashem answer me, Hashem answer me. The Edo Amazek Yatov Hashem Kim in order that people should know and recognize that you Hashem are Kim. His prayer, by the way, was answered, and the Jews responded by saying, Hashem Hu Elokim, Hashem Hu Elokim. Ubiro Chazal, Chazal explained what was the doubled expression. Lo Amar Eliahu Aneni Beis Pomen. Why does Eliahu Novi say aneini twice? Milame. Shem Eliahu Ne'akadosh Baruch Hu Ribayneshalolam. Aneini, First of all, answer me. Shateirid Eish Min Hashemayim With Taicha Kol Shalem bring down miraculously a fire from heaven to consume on the Mizbeach everything that's on it but answer me for something else that it should impress the Jews they shouldn't just attribute it as being mere witchcraft and sorcery because this wasn't one of the predicted miracles in advance it won't fall into the category of a Nays nice they'll all say it was some sort of uh, of, of a magical event that occurred which will then not cause the sanctification of Hashem's name so Eliyahu was saying Hashem nevertheless let this be impressive enough and let the Jews be impressed by it to see a nace and to believe in Hashem as a result with this we could already understand the concept of Eliyahu coming before Mashiach and what Yaakov wanted from Eliyahu this, uh, rather that's why he took the, this, the um, he took the insurance <speaking> in <Hebrew> that the miracles that are going to occur in the future should be predicted in advance and known by the Jews as being a nice nigla again whether it's going to be supernatural or natural is also not even important Yaakov <speaking in> wanted <Hebrew> I, I want you to come in advance to predict it to announce the gula the nigla Hashem in order that it should fulfill this pasuk, the nigla kvot Hashem, the glory of Hashem should be golui, should become revealed like a ace nice nigla, v'roh called in order that all flesh, all humanity, should see together, they should become impressed, which is what the miracle is, and that's the rest of the pasuk. kipi Hashem diber, that is the mouth of, the, of God that has spoken, he says if you analyze this pasuk, you see in it all the ideas that he expressed, what does the pasuk say? The nigla kvoid Hashem, the glory of Hashem, should be revealed. The role called b'osayachlav, and all humanity should see it together and be impressed by it. Kipi Hashem diber, because the mouth of God has spoken. Says, says Rav Schwab, that's really the essence of a nice nigla, as defined by the Ramban, as he explained it, which is that what makes a miracle a miracle is the wow factor. So let all the people be wowed. What's going to make them be wowed? What's gonna make a miracle a ace nigla as opposed to a an A nister an meaning a hidden miracle, a ace nigla being a revealed miracle. How does one differentiate and distinguish from an ace nigla to an ace nister? Not because it's supernatural uh, it's not necessarily because it's supernatural. What makes it a nigla or an ace nister? As the Ramban defined it for us, if it's predicted by the Navi. Sorrow was predicted. Yocheved wasn't. But Yocheved was a greater miracle because she was 130. Sarah was only 90. Terence, says some doctor is going to come along and say, oh, you know, it's uh, this and that and something else. they will come up with some logical explanation. So if you're going to base the miracle or the magnitude of the miracle on the fact that Yocheved was 130 and Sarah was 90, that's not going to do the trick. Well, and that's why the Torah doesn't even bother mentioning it, although its magnitude was all the greater what makes the miracle a greater miracle by Sora than by Yocheved is by Yocheved it wasn't predicted by Sora it was said in advance, it was announced a year before even before she was pregnant that Sarah, your wife is going to become pregnant this year and she's going to give birth to a child in exactly a year from now then when Sarah, at age 90 does that <clears throat> and gives birth to a child that's by Sora is the fact that it was predicted a year before the event occurred By have it just naturally happened, so to speak. Miraculously. But at the time, it wasn't predicted, so it's not called a nes Nigla. So the, the distinction between a nes Nigla and a nes Nistur, says the Ramban, is being predicted by the Novi. Therefore, if Yeshaya Novi is saying that in the future it should be Nigla kavoy Hashem, the glory of God should be Nigla, should be openly revealed, and everybody should be impressed by it. It has to have the requirement of the last part of the Pesach that the mouth of the Lord has spoken in advance it was predicted therefore we have to be told in advance that shouldn't be considered a chance thing says the Rav Schwab even though the Rambam wrote that we just read has to, make Osism, Osism, has to make miracles and supernatural things that's not required by Mashiach that's true but nevertheless the, the Novi says that the future redemption is going to have niflos the same way the Lord of the Lord of the Just of by the Lord of Egypt, it was predicted in of before each Makkah. Therefore, the makos redemption the it was the which is also going to come to, in a sense, parallel the miracle of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, in order for it to be called a Neis Nigla, doesn't require supernatural, but it does require a prediction in advance. Therefore, the future redemption also has to be predicted in advance. Why? Why is it so important that Yaakov was so concerned that I want Elyon Navi to come and predict it in advance? You know what? True. In order for a miracle to have the wow factor to be considered a miracle and that everybody should be impressed, if it's predicted in advance, it's a miracle. If it's not predicted in advance, it might be viewed as a chance occurrence. But so what? When it comes to the final redemption, so what? Let it happen. Let it not be predicted. It'll happen and with 2020 hindsight, we'll see that all the events were miraculous. And Mashiach's here. What do we need? Why is it important for us? to be told in advance about it. We understand with all the other miracles why it's important. Because it was to teach some sort of a lesson. In the days of el Navi, and they were worshipping the Baal. So in order to show the Jews that Hashem Hu Elokim, you needed a miracle coming out of Egypt. Certainly they needed miracles. Firstly, to impress the Jews to believe in Hashem, and to compel the Egyptians to let the Jews out. But what is the point of having a special desurah of Eliyahu Hanavi predicting the future redemption in advance. So here he says a very important point. One mm-hmm. could say that Yaakov was concerned that as future historical events of of magnanimous proportions are going to unfold, and strange and and terrible things and wonderful things are going to happen in the future. Who and tremendous and you know, wars of of tremendous catastrophic proportions. What's going to happen is Mashiach Sheker and Mashiach Sheker will come, Shua and he's going to say, I am the prophet. And with twenty twenty hindsight, these are all the events that are showing Mashiach is about to come, and it's me. And it's going to bring curse on the Jewish people and not blessing. Al for that reason, Yaakov was concerned. He took an insurance from Eliyahu, saying, "You, Eliyahu, come and predict in advance that there's going to be a Gula, and that the Gula has to come predicted and pre-announced. This will be a sign to all the Jews that as things are occurring, if Eliyahu no, is not here, I'm not going to have someone come up afterwards and say I'm And as a result, people will know it's a neis when the time comes." This is something that the Jews have suffered from for hundreds, even thousands of years. Because there were always events that were unfolding in front of our eyes that everybody said, miraculous. Meshiachzaiden. And there's a danger with that. Because although it's yes, it, it, it makes sense to say it's Mashiach tzai, but the problem is someone could cash in on this on this feeling that Jews have. Meshiachzaiden hmm? Who's the candidate? It's me. You know, you always want to know who should make the Khumas. I always keep telling you this, you know, the ones. But person gets up there and he says, "It's me." Yeah, take a look at all the events that occurred. It's, it's, whenever events of historically cosmic proportions and of 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 great magnitude occur, there's always a danger that someone will cash in on that and say it's Mashiach Tzayin, not Mashiach. In order to ensure that, as and Yaakov is the one that saw the whole Geula stretched out in front of him, he's the one that his life parallels and mirrors the. Goals that we're going through—it's a long Golus—and in this Golus, there's going to be a lot of times that there are going to be people that are going to be getting up there and saying, "This is—it has to be Mashiach, right around the corner." And and the Ramban himself made predictions like that, which never bore out. Ramban predicted Mashiach going to come in the 1300s. It didn't happen. Others predicted it, and every time great cataclysmic events occurred in history, this must be Mashiach. And when during the Crusades, let's go back to the Crusades, when the Crusades occurred, everybody said, that's Gogu Mughal. The fighting between the Muslims from the Orient and the Christians from the Occident. This is the clashing of the great cultures and the societies. This is Mashiach, Satan, and the Jews were suffering terribly, we all know, during the Crusades. This must be Mashiach around the corner. This is the great Gogu-Mughal, Gogu Mogul war. Mashiach's around the corner. People can cash in on Mashiach. And as a result, it's very important to not have that occur, because it leads to tremendous, tremendous depression among the Jews. It leads to tremendous depression. If people are expecting and yearning for Mashiach, and they actually become gullible enough to believe in something being Mashiach, and then it doesn't pan out, it leads to such a disillusionment, and such a tremendous fall that it leads to Avodazar, in fact. Rebbe Chaim explains to us that that was really why they worshipped the eagle. Why did they worship the eagle? Because they thought that Moshe was dead. They were counting on Moshe coming down after 40 days, and they were off in their calculation by a day. That day is when they made the eagle. And the Sultan reconfirmed it by giving them the image of Moshe Rabbeinu being carried on the coffin. Interesting how there wasn't a faction among the Jews then to say, oh Moshe didn't die he's going to come right back it's interesting even Moshe Rabbein was the greatest leader of all generations no one said that when they thought he was dead no big deal he'll come right back momentarily they, they didn't even have the patience to wait a day not even a day But there was no faction amongst Kalalisel that said Moshe's dead he's going to be resurrected and he's going to come back to life and we got Mashiach nobody even said that if is dead it was a catastrophe the other one said Moshe's not dead don't worry, give it a day. We're off by one day. Moshe came down a day later and showed everybody that he was alive. But when Moshe died, when they thought Moshe died, they were they, they, they were distraught. They were living in the middle of a desert, far away from civilization, with no leadership. The depression led to instant avodah azar. This happened and recurred throughout Jewish history. Yaakov of the father of the Golos, and the father of the last Golos, the father that 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 lived in his own life personally what we are going through for 2,000 years and Yaakov himself didn't know when the ghoul was going to come he tried to tell it to his sons Bikesh Yaakov it was closed off to him as well the future redemption was closed off to Yaakov but Yaakov learned a tremendous lesson from all of this I don't know when Mashiach is going to come you don't know when Mashiach is going to come and nobody else is going to tell me that they know when Mashiach is going to come we're going to have to wait till it occurs and for that reason, there's always going to be times and periods in Jewish history when tremendously cataclysmic events are going to lead people astray. They're going to imminently expect Mashiach. Someone's going to cash in. It's going to fall apart, lead to depression. I don't know how many Jews became Christians in the times of Chorban Bias. Before that even. But let's go back to when Christianity began, which was all centered around all Right? That's As I said earlier, the word Christian means Mashiachist, And was depression that? In fact, by Shabbos Tzvi, that's why Shabbos Tzvi is not as as clear cut as all this. Shabbos Tzvi, of course, occurred after fourteen years after the events of the Gazer's Tachvatat. Yes, Tzvi. in the Gazer's Tachvatat, which was uh, um, sixteen forty eight, thereabouts was tremendously cataclysmic events in the Jewish history nothing resembling it closely since the time of the Horbin and nothing since then until the time of the Holocaust itself it was the Holocaust for the Jews and it was also what's interesting was that there were there was even amongst the guy I think they were called uh, millenariums, they were called but amongst the Jews it was predicted in advance they were assuming that in the year um, 1560 or something like that Mashiach was going to come or 1550, I don't remember how the Cheshmer works out. Or maybe around the year something like that. <coughs> and all of a sudden, with the predictions actually came these events that were of of, you know, immense proportions. Nothing parallel to before. So they all assumed that this is Mashiach. But people were making all kinds of calculations. They were making all kinds of calculations before, in advance. And they were expecting Mashiach to be coming. Instead they had this the Chmelniki uprisings and you had really a holocaust of the Jews and even as it was happening people were convinced that this is just a precursor of Mashiach afterwards of course a lot of depression set in and Shabzai Tzvi took advantage of it now Shabzai Tzvi didn't just run on his own, there was a fellow Nason of, of Azar or Nathan of Gaza who claimed to be the prophet that's going to predict Shabzai Tzvi so they got together and then they had a good system running over there you're the Mashiach. I'm the prophet, and you know, we'll split the spoils between us. So Nassen of Aza, who was a tremendous Makubal himself, brilliant person, made all kinds of predictions, and um, and they actually predicted that Mashiach was going to uh, come. Along came Shapsi Tzvi, and he said, I am he, I'm Mashiach." So the fact is that that, he, that it was much more complicated then and difficult upon the Jews. It was only the Gedolim That, and not even all of them but those that those that came to to test it out to see if there's there's some legitimacy to the Shabbat Tzvi and to the Nasnavaza and started having questions about it but he was able to cash in on really feelings amongst the Jewish people of depression, of where they're looking for something of feeling this is the end of the millennia this is the beginning of a new dawning of a new age and as a result, he was able to cash in on it. And therefore, you had this combination of depression and as well as uh, prediction of where they, they felt that uh, Mashiach was around the corner. So, and, and what it led to, the consequences are so enormous that it's almost difficult, even 300 years later, to properly assess it. I mean, as a result of the Shabzai Tzvi debacle, what you have, is you had Hasidus beginning on the one hand, and you had the rift and the fight between Hasidus and Misnagdus, which was all because they were concerned about, about this, about Sha'af Sitzvi. And you also had a lot of Jews that threw away the whole thing. That was the beginning of the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, the Reform Movement. And, and all of this occurred, although it occurred a hundred years later, but it all resulted from, the, from this chasm that occurred in the Jewish people as a result of the Shabsik Zvi thing, which wasn't just a one-year thing. I mean, even after he converted, there were those that said that it means something else. You know, uh, it just he's fighting the forces of depression or whatever it is. I mean, they all attribute his conversion to other things. Even when he died, they say he's going to come back, and there were people that were waiting for him. And there were actually Shabsik Phoenix that living in that region in 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 Europe that up until World War One, there were actually still Cults and groups of Jews and some that were semi-Islamic and semi-Jewish that still were awaiting the return of Shabbos Tzvi, the second coming of Shabbos Tzvi. It, it, it just it could go on forever. It went on forever with Mashiach with with, with It's still to this day. On. What still goes on? Still goes on. Shab Tzvi doesn't exist anymore as as a faction amongst the Jewish people, but for many many years. I mean, a hundred years after Shabbat you had a kind of a reincarnation of Shabbat in the form of the Frankists. And the Frankists were were horrible people. I mean, they they made it their business to go to take Masechah's krisis, which deals with all the things that you Chayv chorus on, and do it. Because they came up with this new concept that only we could bring Mashiach is by attacking the dark forces. And they had orgies. And they had, I mean, they did all kinds of you know, terrible things, the immorality, incest, adultery, everything went by them. And they based it on the pasuk that we daven every morning. Baruch Hashem, a you have permitted the forbidden. And that also harped back to Shapsick Svi, who did certain things that were, you know, he said, that's the bracha we make. Hashem permits the prohibited. And then, then they start taking up almost divine proportions. And then you start developing a whole religion around the fact that you must believe that he's Mashiach. As if that ever was part of Judaism. Was it ever part of Judaism that you have to believe in a certain individual being Mashiach? Yeah, the Rambam says, amongst 13 principles of faith, the 12th one is, Mashiach going to come and it's going to be a redemption. And it says the Rambam very clearly, as we just saw, that's it. Now put it out of your mind and not, let's not try figuring out the particulars. It's important to yearn for Mashiach constantly. That's true. Because if you don't, It means that you're complacent about where you are. You shouldn't be complacent about where you are. You should always be looking and longing for the redemption. But not to the point of depression. Longing and yearning for Mashiach and for the Gula should not lead to disillusionment, to disenchantment, and to depression. And therefore, when you go to Eretz Yisroel, people buy two-way tickets. They just do that. Even though it would um, show faith by buying a one-way ticket, because I won't need a return. But if you're going to always buy one-way tickets, it's going to cost you too much money. You've got to be a practical person as well. So together with being ideological and together with being an idealist, you also have to be mm-hmm. practical at the same time. And, and we've had other Gomorrahs that talk about this idea. But you can't get too carried away with redemption and geula and mashiach, because we don't know. Yaakov was worried about this. So the first thing that it says in the Pusik is my covenant with Yaakov that there will be a redemption <coughs> but Yaakov is the one that had the Gula closed off to him he never saw the end result of it and he knew that who knows what it's going to be so Yaakov says to Eliyahu Novi, I want a prophet in advance to come and predict it and you Eliyahu are the candidate why Eliyahu? whatever the reason is why it's Eliyahu but he's the one that went up to Shemaim. if he comes down and he demonstrates proofs, proves to us that he's Eliyahu novi I guess he'll be able to pave the way for Mashiach. But for people to then come and claim Mashiach and say that they are Mashiach or that somebody else is Mashiach, without this process and procedure, the, most of the body of the Jewish people will know not to accept it. That's why it was so important to have Mashiach announced. So we have really two concepts in Eliyahu coming. One is to prepare the way, to pave the way for Jewish people to, to be properly prepared for the events that are going to occur. The other is to prevent charlatans and people that speak in the name of charlatans to come and confuse the Jews and lead to depression. Because if you think this is the way the gula and this is the way the redemption is going to be, then already you're setting yourself up for a terrible fall. A person should always yearn for redemption, but he should leave the way it's going to occur up to Hashem. How it's going to unfold and unravel, that's up to Hashem. It's not for me to know in advance. And you know where else you see it? You see it with the state of Israel. Sunday is going to be the parade. There's such a tremendous disillusionment. We've spoken about this on other occasions. But the tremendous disillusionment that set into the religious Zionist movement. And I I showed you, I think I once brought in, read the article, what if this is not Mashiach Zeit? Written by this Rabbi um, Golden from um, Shvil Hazor, from from Englewood, Tinek, whatever, you know. Englewood over there. And he says, well, we have to now reassess our whole and reevaluate what religious Zionism means till not always meant aschalt of the gula, the beginning of the redemption. But you know what? It led to all kinds of things with Rabin's assassination and everything else. So let's say that instead of davening, that the, that the medina is racist smichas, gula, which could lead to all kinds of zealotry acts, let's tone it down a little bit by saying shatia. Let it be the Which has watered down the whole concept of Religious Zionism to the point where it doesn't exist anymore Because everybody could say that Everything we always hope should be the beginning And lead us to redemption The whole point of that, of, of that concept of Religious Zionism was that we know definitively That this is Aschalt of the Gula The beginning of the Gula process The moment you say well I'm not really sure But I hope it will be So that we're all in the same boat We're all saying the same thing We all want it to be the beginning of the era of where the redemption is going to occur. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. That's not a tefillah. The the article of faith was that it is. And by having that article of faith in advance and saying, I know this event is that, what happens? We start giving back the land and the territory. It's very depressing. It's not as, I mean, it's depressing for everybody. It's depressing for all of us. But it's not as depressing if you didn't make it the focus and the locus of your religion that this is that this is the redemption all of a sudden you find yourself with an egg on your face the Chazanish had the courage to say 30 years ago we are not prophets let's leave all of this stuff up to Hashem or to a prophet that's going to come and say something and and in order to be a prophet getting back to your question how do we know a prophet? you gotta learn the (laughs) Torah Where the realm discusses how do we know who who is a genuine bona fide prophet? A genuine bona fide prophet is not one that says Shin Nun will be a year of miracles and then the Soviet Union falls See, I told you it's going to be a year of miracles. A a prophet is not one that says together with 50 other people that says stay in Israel don't worry about the Scuds. That's not a prophet. That's 50 other people said. A prophet is one that says there's going to be 39 Scuds falling on Israel not 38 not 40 but 39 which is how many fell a prophet is one that says not that Nun is going to be a year of miracles that's not prophecy prophecy is something that you could test the person on time and time again because the same prophet that said that Nun will be a year of miracles is the one that said that Nun Aleph comes from the words that he used before from the Pasik in Micha that was quoted earlier the um kimait says khamair it's eren on the flaws what do we read that? says khamair it's time er alright mi kham kimait says khamair it's time eren on the flaws so the word the, the russian tables of and avo no's toshunonov There's going to be greater miracles what were the greater miracles i don't know i mean you can say whatever you want then toshunonov was kyeshnas the flaws the something or other. I forgot already what the vase represented. Which was then interpreted to me by the people that were in the know that it means that all disease is going to cease. There's not going to be any more diseases anymore and it's going to be miraculous. That you don't hear anybody talking about now that that prophecy didn't work out. What I touched in the form. What you do hear though is that there was prophecy was predicted in advance that the downfall of the Soviet Union. I remember when that prophecy occurred. There was no prophecy. What it was is that Tufshin Nun meant it would be a year of miracles and miraculously that's what the Soviet Union fell that's the whole entirety of the prophecy I shouldn't neglect to tell you that Tavshin Mem meant Tiye Shnas Tov and Tavshin Mem Ches meant Tismach and Tavshin I mean this goes back to Tavshin Mem that I remember people saying that uh, Tavshin that... Mem that's 1980 means Tiye Mashiach okay that's Tavshin Mem so it was every year was Tavshin this the Finally, after 15 of them, one of them worked out pretty good, that the Shindun became Tiyash Nas Nisim, and all of a sudden it's now being heralded to us as being genuine prophecy. This is not genuine prophecy. This is a very, very pale, pale image of what prophecy was meant to be. Certainly, to be a prophet anyway, you have to be 100% accurate in everything you say. That means that Tavshinun Nalf has to be this, and Tavshinun Base has to be that. It's vague anyway. The whole thing is vague. To say that don't leave Israel because it's the safest place on earth. I don't know what it means the safest place on earth. It was one of the things that they were saying then. But I mean, other people said don't leave Israel. A lot of people said that. Why? Because they made a rational calculation that you shouldn't produce a panic. It goes back to the question that they asked me Wednesday night. What about, that, that somebody in Scarsdale was saying, what about the fact that uh, the, the, the rabbis and the gedolim said not to leave Europe in the 30s? I said, you know, you got to know what you're talking about. In the late 30s, they all said to leave, but it was too late. In the early 30s. So what would you have said? You would have said, was it logical to say, mass panic. Although it never occurred throughout Jewish history, that a thousand years of European Jewish history should cease to exist, and there's going to be mass genocide, and therefore go to the Trefant, the Medina, America, and everybody should leave. I mean, Who would have said that in his right mind? You'd have been an irresponsible leader to say such a thing with no... Who could have fathomed and known without prophecy what's going to happen in 1940? Nobody could have known. Unless you're a prophet. You could be a chochum, But who could have predicted such a thing? I mean, Chochm But if Hashem doesn't give you that insight, then the logical, rational thing is to say, stay put, don't worry about it. Can you imagine the stock market's falling and you tell all the brokers to leave. What you, what you do is you destroy the economy. Become painters. Become, you know, shmeers. What are you going to tell everybody to be? I'm saying this because... But the painter that I had in my house told me he left painting, he left Wall Street to go into painting because that's where the money was. <laughs> I'm not joking. He drives up to the Lincoln Continental. I asked him, How could you how could you justify a paint job that took two workers, two schmears, one day, and you're walking away with thousand dollars and that's giving me a break and you're in Westchester you charge two thousand dollars for that job. How do you justify that? I mean it's, it's, what is it, a hundred dollars an hour? I mean so he says, Well listen, you know, you gotta make a living he used to be in Wall Street, and he liked the glamorous lifestyle. And when he left college, he went straight to that. I, mean, I thought the guy was a painter. You know, he went to college. He's educated. He's a young, you know, one of these uh, entrepreneurs, uh, brokers. And now he's a painter. That's where the money is. That's where you got to go, Andy. You got to go become a painter. But the fact is that who would have known in advance that, how things, how things are going to unfold? Who could possibly know to have prophecy? You don't just make these broad based things and everything that you say has to then be checked and shown. So you ask the question, who's gonna be the one? Someone's gonna to have to be checked down out like this. You have to be, if Elianovi comes back and he says he's Elionovi, we're not gonna just say, Okay, this year's is uh Tovshin it means this and this and then the Soviet Union falls and everything is great and wonderful. It's like I told you the two cars going with the California plates and after the effects see, I said something's gonna happen strange. I have to predict in advance that two cars are coming with California license plates. I have to predict in advance. Then you got to check me again and again and again. And I always have to be 100% accurate. Not 99%. Not saying stay in Israel. Everybody said stay in Israel. But you know what would have happened if one of those tip bombs would have had you know some sort of a gas or, or biological agent on it? Everybody would have said. Chutzpah, all these rabbis have said that everybody should stay. What do they know? Just like they said about World War II. But you have to deal with with logic. In the early 30s it would have been irresponsible for anybody to have said that there's going to be a catastrophe. All Jews are going to be wiped out. Everybody run to America. What about those Jews that won't listen and will stay behind? I mean you're going to cause a tremendous upheaval that you have no right to do. The only person that properly predicted in advance what's going to happen was a Meshuganah. Jabotinsky. He was a revisionist. But the reason why I call him Michugan is because if you listen to all the other things that Jabotinsky said, nobody's doing that now to kick their... So listen to Jabotinsky then. He's the only one that said it. It wasn't the conservatives before. It certainly wasn't the modern orthodox uh, people then that said anything to the effect, leave Europe. Nobody said it. Jabotinsky said it. Fine, so follow Jabotinsky then. The fact is that responsible decisions have to be made in a responsible way. Therefore, to prevent this problem... To prevent problems from then laying claim to catastrophic events and leading to a tremendous depression. Because an announcement must be made. An announcement of Mashiach has to be made. That's why Yaakov Avinu took the vow from Elio on He took the vow because he knew these problems are going to happen and that people are going to cash in on events and we don't even nowadays know the ramifications of what happened to the disillusionment that occurred when Shaps Yitzvi. Just like the first time Maish Rabbeinu was thought to be dead and they went to avoid the Zara, and even then, nobody claimed that he's coming back. There wasn't such a faction amongst the Eden that Moshe is coming back. He's dead. Some said that's the Satan, He's not dead. But those that said that he was dead, nobody said that he's coming back. It led to depression. And Shavzit Tzvit led to depression. And the Crusades and all of these things. It's, we, it, we suffer terribly from this. So that's why it was Yaakov Avinu himself that said to the Jews, that said to Elianavi, I want that Vav. I need a guarantee that before Mashiach comes, it's going to be done the right way. It's not going to be people laying claims to prophecy and to... It's not going to be any of that. That's why it was so important to have Eliyah Novi. So we now have two reasons why Eliyah Novi is coming to us as an announcer. One is the way the Rambam says it. The other is based on, in other words, to, Bonham, to bring Shalom. The other is to, so that we, we should then know that if we don't have the genuine article, it's not Mashiach yet. There is a third aspect over here as well in terms of why Yaakov would take the Va from Eliyahu's name as an Eirovoin, as a guarantee about Eliyahu novi coming to, to herald Mashiach's coming. And this is perhaps a more philosophical concept. And here, here again we'll use Eliyahu novi as representing an idea, although of course it could certainly be Eliyahu novi himself in the person. And that's the following. The Gemara, when the Gemara refers to Eliyahu novi very often it uses him as as an indication of what will be all of these kashas and all the problems that we have throughout Golos whether in learning and in other areas Eliyona is going to come and answer up those kashes. now of course we've already seen the Rambam say that the purpose of this prophet who at this point Rambam isn't even necessarily referred to as Eliyona is really coming to prepare the world and especially the Jewish people to, for, the great, for the great cataclysmic events that are going to shortly unfold but the Gemara does refer to Elio Anovi as the person that's going to answer all of those kashas, all of those problems that we have that we don't have a solution for. Takeu, Tishbi, yitaret Kushos, Vabayis. Let Elio Anovi come and answer up the kashas. Let him answer all of these problems that we have. Does it necessarily mean that it's literally Elio Anovi himself who's going to answer the questions? Or Elio represents the idea that at the end of time we'll finally have a teretz to all the kashas that we have? certainly in kashas and halacha and other things, there's going to be a basin in the Sanhedrin. Eliyahu of course, as a person, is also, a, is also part of the chain of the Misara. He was one of the people that the Rambam traces in terms of the Misara from Dora, Hador, from generation to generation. So certainly Eliyahu himself is qualified to answer. But this, again, is a very broad idea in the sense that Eliyahu is going to answer up the problems and the questions that perplex us throughout the Golas were the problems of halacha or other things. Again, this runs into the issue of whether a novi could answer shilas and halacha based on Nabu. Of course he can't. Is it based on his tradition, on his understanding, on his logic? However, it's understood. But in a much more deeper and profound idea, what we have over here is we have that there are so many kashas and issues that have remained unresolved throughout calls that we don't have the territs for. And until the end of time, until the conclusion, of the Golas, until finally we see the redemption, only then will we be able to finally understand and comprehend all of these things that have been perplexing to us and these unanswered and unanswerable and unknowable and unfathomable questions. Elianovi is to answer those questions. Elianovi represents the idea of finally achieving an answer to all of these questions that we had in Golas. True, we're going to have the Gula, but we still have the questions of the Golas. We still have the questions of why the Golos was the way it was. And these are unanswerable questions. And Yaakov is the one of the office that represents this problem. Because Yaakov, besides the long Golos that he endured, and besides the suffering that he had to endure, but there are so many questions and so many shilas that the life of Yaakov of Inu represents. Questions of wandering, questions of Golos, questions of persecution and of suffering and of these unanswerable questions. Questions that Yaakov himself didn't understand. As Rub Chaim Shmuel says that Parsha's Vaishlach, which is the Parsha of the Golus of Yaakov of Parsha's Vaishlach represents going off to Golus, Golus, Esau, Golus, Edom, and therefore the Ramban brings down over there in the beginning of Parsha's Vaishlach that this is the Parsha which was studied by the sages before they had to deal with political questions regarding vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis Rome. Whenever they went off to Rome and they had to deal with Golus Edom they had to go through the Parsha Va'ishlach to mine more answers to the questions that were facing them and to the issues of the day and to the situations that they found themselves in Parsha Va'ishlach represents the parsha of Golos. it's all one parsha with no breaks in it there are no breaks in the parsha it's not composed of any of those small parshas that we find with the pays and the Samochs in the chumash parsha va'ishlach is one big parsha it says says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz the lesson in that is that until you go through the whole goalus, until you come to the end you can't stop in the middle and understand any part of it if you stop in the middle you will not understand we as human beings are short-sighted we're only living segments of golus all of our lives as long as they may be are only short pieces short segments of this golus until you go through the entire golus of Yaakov Avinu, through his entire life through all the things that he's lived through, till the very end, when the Geulah comes, only then can you then look back and understand the Parsha of goals of Yaakov Avinu. That's what Yaakov Avinu was trying to ensure. He's taking as a keepsake from Eliyahu Hanavi, who's coming to herald the Geulah, who's coming to be the de'olam, as the Rambam says, to straighten out the world, the heshev lev ov to bring peace and harmony in families, in the nation, in the Jewish people. And as Rav Schwab says, to to actually predict and say the gula is about to come and now we know to make a distinction between the real article, the genuine gula and all of these possible fraudulent gulas but in addition to that when we finally reach that point we'll be able to finally look back and understand also the message of the golas to finally answer all of the whys and wherefores of the golas itself because those are questions independent of of the actual gula we have to understand the lessons of the Govus. What do we learn from it? Why was it necessary? There's no way to answer it while we're in the middle of it. Bikesh Yaakov, Govus, Saketz, and When Yaakov Avinu even attempted to give his children some sort of, a, of an indication of when it's going to occur and how it's going to occur and how to answer these things, it was all closed off to him. Yaakov lived the life of the question. ...of the wandering Jew... ...and with all of the questions... ...he was able to see a by the end... And, ...and then in retrospect... ...he was able to understand it... ...but like we said last week... ...from the Ksav Cipher... ...that when you bring the zevach toida... ...when you bring the final hoidoah... ...the final thanksgiving to HaKadosh Baruch ...it should be lorotan... ...it should be at with your will... ...and we explained then... ...what does it mean with your will... ...how could... ...of course... Isn't that the one korban out of all the korbanas that a person brings willingly because he's doing it as an act of thanksgiving to Hashem? And the Ksav Seifer explained very profoundly, yes, people are giving it with a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude to Hashem, the korban todah. But what brought them into the danger that they were then saved from is not lerotzen. They would have preferred not to have had that. majority of the people, yes, they're thankful and they are grateful, for Hashem redeeming them from the suffering but they would have preferred no suffering and no thanksgiving. Says the Pasek, when you bring the toda, the entire korban should be loratzon. It should be willingly, you should be able to feel the, not only the, the, the salvation as being important and as being something to give thanks for and to be grateful for, but the whole korban The entire sacrifice should also be Lerotson, should also be according to your will. You should appreciate and try to understand why what happened before was also necessary in order to somehow or other give you a sense of elevation and and progress as well. The entire korban should be Lerotson. This is very difficult when a person is in the middle of the pain. When a person is in the middle of the suffering, there's no way of thinking in the sense that, oh, I understand, and I appreciate, and I give thanks. But certainly, once already you bring the korban Toda. once you've been saved, once you've been saved from all of the problems that, that befell you, then already you could look back with hindsight and with the clarity of retrospect, you could look back and see, and see why all of it was necessary and give thanks for the entire korban, for the entire sacrifice. You bring the entire korban todah with will, not only the salvation part, but the part that precipitated that salvation, which is why Hashem did what He did. So, therefore, when the Geulah comes, we should have answers not only for the Geulah, but answers for the Golus as well. That in itself is also a rep- is represented by Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu is going to come to clarify the problems, to clarify the perplexities of Golos. That's why Eliyahu Novi is coming as well. So, what we see is three functions of Eliyahu Navi three missions one is to prepare the way to pave the way for Chuba Yom Yom Hashem before the great and awesome day of Hashem, whether that refers to Gogomog or to something else whatever it is but to prepare and to pave the way to set us straight that we should start contemplating and ready ourselves for the final act for the final act as the curtain comes down on all of the episodes of history then he has a function and in that he has the function of the to bring peace and harmony in the family and the people that's one function of El Novi that the Rambam mentions but the Rambam is a little bit unclear there whether it's the same Novi as El Navi or it's going to be two different prophets at two different stages of the unfolding of the Gula that are going to be doing these two different things independently again it's unclear but the Rambam leaves it vague because he says that no one really knows the exact unfolding of the events but that's one function one function that we could call the function of El another one says Rav Schwab is that this is going to finally prepare the way that it should be called a nais nigla that we should finally be confident that what we're dealing with is the genuine article of gaula and not some fraudulent gula. And the third function of Eliyahu Hanavi is tishbi yitarit kushos Vabayas. Yaakov Avinu took the vav of Eliyahu Hanavi to say, I am expecting you to finally come at the end, and you are going to represent God's answer to the questions of Golos, to the questions of why we are faced with all of these troubles and the trials and the tribulations. My life, the life of Yaakov Avinu, the life of Golos, the life of suffering and endurance, you're going to have to come up with an answer. You're going to have to come up with an explanation. And therefore, I'm taking the vav that you will come up with the answer and with the explanation. And when the gula finally comes, we'll have an answer to all of our questions, to the questions of golus, tishbi yitaritz, kushos vabayis, Yaakovina took the vav from Elio Novi to guarantee that we will finally have an understanding, not only of the gula, but of the golus as well. And as we conclude in benching, we say the prayer, Horachamon Huyishlach Lonues Eliyo Hanovi Zahulatov, may the all merciful one send to us Eliyahu Hanovi, Vivasar Lanu Bisauris Taivais, Yeshuais Vinachomais, and he should announce for us the good news, the Saras Taivas, good news and good announcement, Yeshua's salvation and the and Consolation. Perhaps in this prayer lies all of these three concepts and aspects of Eliyahu Anovi's purpose. He's there to come to, to announce for us. He should be the announcer of the good news that the redemption is at, is at hand. Yeshua is with the as well as the salvation and the consolation. Salvation and the consolation, we should do tshuva, we should prepare ourselves and also the consolation to explain to us what the purpose of the Golos was, and that we will, we will finally have answers to all these questions that have perplexed mankind throughout history, all the way till the final act, of the final gaula.